Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3. You've already read the whole chapter. I want to reread verses 7 through 9. Genesis 3, 7 through 9. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? What happened? What happened? reminds me of walking upstairs to our playroom. It was clean. It was spotless. And those three kids were in there for all but five minutes, and it's a disaster. And they're nowhere to be found. Where are you? What happened? At the end of chapter 1, we were told that God created everything. He saw everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. Something here has gone very bad. At the end of chapter 2, we see a beautiful union between a man and a woman in marriage. And it seems now that we have horrific separation. What happened? Well, this is the origin story of how evil and sin entered our world. It's the event called the fall. And I can't overstate how significant this chapter is for you and I. It's important for you to be aware of it and to understand it. You need to know that all the problems in this world, throughout history, all the problems today, all of the problems in your life can be traced back to this event. All the disorder, all divorce, all, dis- all division all disease, all disaster, all that is detestable, all that is despicable, all that is disgraceful, all depression, all devastation, all degeneration, and death can be traced back to Genesis chapter 3. The fall is the greatest tragedy in human history. Yet even in this tragedy we see a note of great triumph. A promise that is important for you to cling to. So this is an important chapter. It's important that we stop here and take notes on this great event and see how it applies to you today and all of the problems that you have in your life. I've broken it into three parts. Three scenes of tragedy and one scene of triumph. We're going to walk through this text. Let's look first, the first scene of tragedy, titled The Temptation. The Temptation in verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that, is the, that the Lord God 
had made. Now, this is the great antagonist of our story. He walks onto the scene. And here he's called the serpent, but later in Scripture he is identified as the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the world, Revelation 12.9. Who is Satan? You've got to understand who the enemy is. You need to know that Satan is not the yin to God's yang. He's not a god. He's not an equal force with God. He is a created being. He is an angel. Created by God as blameless and beautiful was once Lucifer, but evil was found in him, Ezekiel 28 says. He stood up to God. In pride, he led a revolt against his creator, trying to take his throne. And for that, God cast him out of heaven, down to the earth, And here we find him possessing the body of a serpent. The serpent was designed by God to be crafty for his glory, but God uses the craft, or sorry, Satan uses the craftiness for his own devices to appeal to the woman and to tempt her. And I want you to see that there is a three part strategy to Satan's temptation. If you want to prepare for war as a good soldier, you're you're going to study your enemy. If you're an athlete, you want to prepare for the big game, you're going to watch some tape on the opposing team. Listen, you and I need to prepare against the temptation of Satan. Because we find Satan using the same strategies today as he does in this chapter. We're called to be watchful and sober-minded for our adversary, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're called to take up the shield of faith and extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It would be good for us to roll back the tape, study it, take notes, and observe this three-part strategy from Satan. Number one, the first part of his strategy, his strategy, and it's in your outline, is subtle denial. Satan doesn't start with a blatant attack. He starts with a question. Look down at the text, verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, this is a loaded question, with, loaded with false suggestions. First, he suggests that God's word is either unclear or it's unfair. Did God actually say? Did he really say that? Or on the unfair side, Did he really say that? Sounds kind of crazy. Unreasonable. Unfair. And then notice the second suggestion, the false suggestion, is that God is not good. Satan withholds all the provision from God's command, and he highlights the only restriction. You cannot eat of every tree of the garden, can you? And with this question, Satan paints a a caricature of God that is false, making him look more restrictive than he actually is and, and less gracious, less good. God's all law. He's no grace. Is that the God that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2? Certainly not. It's a false caricature. This is the first fruit that Eve is offered, a false view of God, and she bites. 
She bites, and we know that by her response. The woman said to the serpent in verses 2 through 3, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did you notice that Eve has both added and subtracted from God's word? She added a command that God did not say. She added what? You can't even touch it. Did God say that? No. She also subtracted very subtly from God's grace. She missed a word. God didn't just say that you can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. He said you can eat of every tree in this garden. Abundant provision except for one. See how subtly in Eve's response she misrepresents God. Subtle doubt has set in. And she's made God more restrictive than he actually is. And less benevolent. Less gracious. Less good. Aren't you and I tempted to do the same every day? Sure, God has given us an abundance of good gifts. We have health, we have life, we have a home, we have food on our table in front of us. Some of us, you know, we have good jobs. But what do we focus on? That one thing he's withholding from me right now. That's all I can think about. I don't have a wife. I don't have a husband yet. I don't have the job that I want. I don't have the money that I want. I don't have children. I don't have more children. I don't have more money. Don't we focus more on that one thing that is withholding and we disregard the abundance of God's grace that's been showered on our lives. Tempted to do the same thing. Also tempted to add God's word. Add to God's word. This is called legalism. When you add man-made rules, barriers, walls, and maybe you add them with good intention, you add these walls because you, you want to avoid sin, but then your religion becomes all about the walls, all about your legalistic rules. And sooner or later, you lose the heart of the law for the letter of it, the letter of your own law. We're tempted in the same way. And the temptation aims first at the foundation of our faith. It induces doubt in the inerrancy and sufficiency of God's word. What did God say? Is it true? And if so, is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? Or do you need something else? Are you looking somewhere else? What do you need to fight this first strategy in Satan's temptation. You need to know God's word. Eve obviously had forgotten it and been induced to subtle doubt. The second part in Satan's strategy is blatant denial. He doesn't start with this. He's subtle with a question, but then at some point, the false teacher needs to stand up and blatantly deny God's word. And that's what Satan does. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And here, friends, is the first heresy ever recorded in history. Satan is the first false teacher, the liar, the deceiver, 
God clearly said, you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And Satan has the audacity to stand up and say, you will not. The Bible itself, 2 Timothy 3.16, claims to be the infallible, inerrant, and sufficient word of God. God breathed. And at some point, the false teacher stands up and says, it's not. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And at some point, the false teacher needs to stand up and say, no, he's not. God's word is clear. God's word clearly says that homosexuality is sin. It's an abomination to the Lord. Across thousands of years of culture, you have explicit, explicit commands in Leviticus, explicit, explicit commands in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. And at some point, the false teacher goes, no, it's not. Blatant denial. Blatant denial. And let me tell you, friends, these blatant denials are everywhere. But the reason that you don't notice them is because, again, you don't know the Scriptures. The world is preaching blatant denials of God's Word all the time. It's in the movies you watch. It's in the shows you watch. The podcasts you listen to. The YouTube streams. Blatantly denying what God's word explicitly says. And you don't even know it. Because you don't know this book. But the enemy, at some point, will blatantly deny God's word. And it doesn't stop at denial. The tempter always holds a carrot out in front of you. Something that appeals to your natural desires. And it's a lie. And that lie isn't just a trap you fall into. It's flagrant. That lie pits you against God, your creator. So the third part of his strategy is flagrant deceit. Look at what Satan says in verse 5. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now there's just enough truth in that statement to seem good, But it's loaded because the end is a lie. In a sense, by eating the fruit from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, they will become like God in the sense that they can now see right and wrong. They can see evil and good. They'll have an experience, a very very tangible experience of what evil is. In fact, it will dwell within them. But the carrot in front of Eve was not just the knowledge of good and evil. It was to be like God. It was the lie that you could supplant him, dethrone him, and take his place. It's the lie that Satan himself believed. That he would become like God, and it resulted in his fall. And it's a, the lie is flagrant because it pits you against God. God is opposed to the proud. Opposed to those who try to take his throne. Opposed to those who would rebel and revolt against him. you got to see that the temptation to sin is not simply a misdemeanor. It's not a mistake. It's not a trap that you fall into. Sin is royal rebellion. 
And the temptation, the height of it, will always take someone to the place that suggests that your way is better than his way. That's the carrot. Your way is better than his way. That's the carrot that we bite when we sin. And we got to know that choosing our way dethrones God in our minds. All sin is, is this way. It's flagrant, it's offensive, and sin is royal rebellion. And so there is Satan's pitch. And it's the same or similar strategies that we see today from the world and from the enemy and the desires that we fight within. And to fight them, we have got to answer this question. What does God's word say? Is it true? And if so, is it enough for us? Is it enough for us? Do you believe in what God's word says? Here is our ultimate authority. And so there's a crack that is found in Eve's foundation, which takes us to her sin. The second tragic scene in verse 6. It says in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. James 1.14 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's important for you to know that Eve, sure she was tempted by Satan, but sin was conceived and found in her heart. She's responsible for her own sin because it was her own desires that gave birth to the sin in her heart. And we see that sin is conceived in our hearts as well with three basic desires. In your outline, first, Physical appetites contrary to God's purpose. Physical appetites contrary to God's purpose. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. Is it wrong to eat food? No, the body was made to eat, to drink, even to feel. And these are not in and of themselves wrong things, wrong appetites. But it's wrong when the physical appetites are contrary to God's purpose contrary to his design, and that's what conceives sin. Sins such as gluttony, overeating, sins such as addiction, sins such as drunkenness, sins such as sexual deviance. Again, these are natural appetites, but they weren't made for that reason. This is what's called the lust of the flesh in 1 John 2.16. So that's one basic desire. The second basic desire that we see, see Eve give into are visual attractions outside of God's provision. She saw that it was a delight to her eyes. It was something that she didn't have. Something that God didn't provide to her. God provided her from every other tree in the garden, but withheld that one tree, and that's the one she wanted. You see something and you want it, but it's not yours. That's not my wife but I want her. It's not my body, but I want it. It's not my house, but I want it. Not my role, it's not my job, 
but I want it. This is the lust of the eyes. Covetousness and, and lust is born out of this. Lust of the eyes in 1 John 2, 16. The third basic desire that conceives sin. These are our desires, by the way. Satan didn't implant these into Eve. These were birthed in her own heart. The third one is selfish ambition to take God's position. This is where it all ultimately leads. You know, there are very few people, very few, there are a few, but there are very few that say, I want to be like God, or even claim themselves to be God. We won't say it out loud, but we think to ourselves, my way is better than his way. Don't we? I don't like how God's doing this right now. I'm going to do it my way. I don't like what God says there. I want to do it my way. And what are you saying, ultimately, in your heart when you do that? You're, you're dethroning God and you want to take his place. It's a selfish ambition to be in God's position. My justice is fairer than God's justice. My opinion is stronger. My experience is, is greater, more relevant. My way is better. This is the desire to make one wise. Eve looked at it and it, she had this desire to make herself wise, to be in God's position. And 1 John 2 calls this the boastful pride of life. And so these desires conceived sin, just like James describes. In verse 6, we see she takes the fruit and she eats it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Tragic. They both fall. What is the order that sin entered the world? Well, you have the evil serpent, Satan. And who sinned next? Eve. And then who third? Adam. That's the order that it happened, the chronological order. But who does God hold responsible? I read the verse. It's interesting. When God enters the scene after the sin, in verse 9, he calls to who? Very clear in the text. Adam. Adam. He calls to the man, not to the serpent, not to Eve. He calls to the man and he said to him, where are you? You need to know that you in the Hebrew is singular. Who is he calling out? The man. Who does God hold responsible for sin entering the world? Adam, the man. Where were you, Adam, when your wife ate that fruit? Where were you when that serpent entered the garden and started inducing your wife to subtle doubt, flagrantly denial, uh, flagrant deceit, blatant denial? Where were you, Adam? And men, I think we need to hear this today. Where are you as a husband in protecting your wife from the attacks of the world? Where are you as a father in protecting your children from the lies and the deceit of worldliness? Where are you, men? Are you there standing as a faithful protector? Do you know God's word? Are you able to defend it? Or do you find yourself often where Adam does? The third party, late to the game. Wife, children already deceived. 
and in sin. No, on that day, God is going to look you in the eyes and say, where were you? Where were you? You take responsibility for your passivity. You take responsibility for your family. You take responsibility for your marriage. Men, where are you? Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Romans 5.19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinner. This is the doctrine of original sin. Sin is in our nature. It's in our nature. It's passed down from Adam. Because of Adam, no one is born basically good. But we all have an inclination. We're, you know, David describes it, we're conceived in sin. We're brought forth in iniquity. It's in our nature. You know, just like you put a, a ball on an inclined table, it will always go downward. That's us. That's us. We all know it's true. We've all sinned, so we experience the effects of the fall every day. We sin. We fall short. We have this sinful nature. We have this problem. And listen, you need to see that this is your problem. This is your problem. This is my problem. My problem's not out there. My problem is not even primarily Satan. My problem is not the world and all the temptation that I face every day. My problem is within. I'm a sinner. And I sin every day. And the desires within me give birth to sin and sin leads to death. My problem, your problem, friend, hear me, and I know it's hard to accept, is sin. That's what needs to be dealt with. That was the problem in Genesis 3. It's what led to the whole corruption of man and corruption of creation. And it's your problem today. One man sinned. Now all of us have sinned. Romans chapter 5 makes that very clear. And we need to take responsibility for it. Unlike what Adam did. We'll see in the third scene, in the tragic, this tragic scene of, of, I'm calling the consequences, the consequences of sin. I want you to notice there are some immediate reactions, some immediate consequences before God dishes out the curses. Genesis 3-7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. First consequence is guilt. They knew they did wrong, and you know it too. You experience that guilt when you sin, when you do what is wrong. And they knew they were naked, it says. Shame. Shame follows sin. Before they were naked and unashamed, and now they have this strange feeling of embarrassment. Shame. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves loincloths. How quickly does man resort to self-reliance? I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it myself. I'm going to make my own coverings. Instead of going to God to confess it, to ask Him for help, to try to fix it themselves, they make their own loincloths. They try to fix it. And their loincloths are insufficient. They don't cover well. How do I know that? God remakes them. God has to fix their self-fixing, their self-reliance. Know this, your own self-righteousness is always insufficient. 
You can't fix it. Only God can. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The, the way the language here is, is it makes it apparent that God did this regularly. This is the time that he visited man and woman. And so this is his routine. He comes down and he walks in the garden. And before, there was probably a great welcome, a great hello, an excitement to see him. But what did they do? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. So what do we do when we sin? We hide. And why do we hide? Because we know the relationship's broken. We know there's something wrong. We know there's a separation between us and God. We have that sense. We know it. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Do you remember the first time that you were shook to your core afraid in your life? Maybe as a child? It's interesting. You know, uh, even psychologists would, would say that those fear-inducing experiences, those are, those are hard to forget. You remember those. And those, those you know, try to suppress it over and over with therapy it has other consequences in your life. It manifests itself in other ways. Do you remember the first time you were afraid? Think about this fact. Adam was never afraid until this moment. And he had a just reason to be afraid. Who was he afraid of? Not the lion that he had named. Not the bear that had now been corrupted by the sin he committed. Not of his wife, <laughs> Adam was afraid of God, justifiably so, because he knows God is holy, God is blameless, God is righteous, and he had just offended him. He had just broken the relationship. He was afraid of what? God's wrath, the punishment from God. He was afraid. Fear accompanies sin. And then we see in verses 11 through 13, just a comical blame shift. Who told you you were naked? God says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Who did Adam blame? Not Eve. The woman you gave to me. Adam had the audacity to blame God, the giver of the gift that he received in his wife. Wow. Then he goes to the woman. What is it that you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me. Hey, at least she blamed, the, at least she blamed Satan, not God. But ultimately, all blame shifting goes back to God. All excuses for sin... It's one of our natural responses to make excuses, to point and say, oh, it's the way I was raised. Oh, it was my father who left me. Oh, it was my mother. She was too hard on me. Oh, it was that one experience I went through in high school. That's why I am the way that I am. Listen, friend, you're a sinner because you are corrupt by sin and you have selfish desires, lustful desires that conceive sin in your heart, you're responsible for it. 
Blame shifting does not solve the problem. God doesn't acknowledge any of these excuses or any of these responses. And he immediately dishes out divine curses. God gives them in the order that the sin was committed. He starts with the serpent. Says to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Apparently at one time snakes stood upright. In fact, scientists have seen this in their bone structure. They had some sort of appendages. In fact, the Hebrew word for serpent is nakash. At one time it meant shining upright creature. It's interesting. But the glory of the snake was lost in the fall. It will slither on its belly. And instead of being admired for its beauty, it is detested by the large majority. A lot of people don't like snakes. That's clear. People try to kill it in the field rather than admire it. And so the serpent, even though he was just a vessel in Satan's hands, we see just here that even creation itself, the animal kingdom was corrupted by the sin that Adam committed. Then God turns to Satan, and we're going to come back to this later, but he tells Satan ultimately that Satan is cursed with strife and he will ultimately be defeated. Now, just you know, put a bookmark there. We're going to come back to it. The third person to receive a divine curse is the woman. Because she sinned next. And, and the woman is promised pain and childbirth. So the very means by which the world would be populated by God's command to fill the earth and multiply, the very means by which that happens will be painful. In fact, it will be so excruciatingly painful, it will be amongst the most painful experience that any human being ever experiences. Childbirth, labor. And women, you say, I know. Those of you who had children... Painful, very painful. It's a result of the fall. It says also that the woman is going to struggle with her role. God made her to be a helper, not, not less than the man, but equal in value, yet with different roles. But she's going to have this role struggle. She's going to desire contrary to her husband. She'll fight for the control. She'll fight for the lead to take over. And then the pendulum's going to swing on the opposite end, and men will become abusive. Men will rule over the women in an abusive and a domineering way, which is wrong too. There's going to be this epic battle of the sexes throughout history. There will be these role fights. Don't we see that happening today? Abuses on both sides. Then God looks to the man. Because of the man's sin, the earth is cursed and will also be a source of pain and suffering. Romans 8 says that creation groans because of its bondage to corruption. And the, the progeny of the earth, the children of this pain, will include thorns, thistles, earthquakes, fire, hurricanes, tornadoes, Tsunamis, floods, those are reminders that the earth is in pain. It's groaning. And why is the earth in pain? 
because of sin, Adam's sin, our sin. Adam himself will experience pain and suffering and loss because of sin. Work will not be easy, and men, we know this, women too. Work will not be easy. There will be roadblocks, problems, hindrances, sweat, toil, bad bosses, bad employees, horrible co-workers. Here's the reason. By the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread. It'll be hard, men, for you to earn a living. It'll be hard for you to put food on the table. There will be some anguish in work. It's because of sin. But then the king of curses is revealed. The king of curses. And God promised this would come. If you eat of the fruit, you will surely die, he said in chapter 2. And look at what he says in verse, 13, or verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Instead of perpetual life and growth, which is God's design from the beginning, sin brings decay and degeneration. Scientists have even made it into a scientific law. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything, if left to itself, will degrade, disorder, and degenerate. We know this is true. Sure, you're at, some of you are at the peak of your life. You know, you're climbing in your 20s and you're feeling good, healthy. There will come a point where that tips and you'll experience the degrade, the degeneration the pain, the aches. And you will recognize quickly, I'm moving toward death, not toward life. It's because of sin. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because Adam sinned? No, because all have sinned. The reason for all the problems in this world, the disease, the disorder, the disunity, the decay, the degeneration, and death through all history and the death that touches our lives is sin. And then we see just this horrible picture in verses 22 to 24. It's tragic. God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. He threw him out of the house. He forsook him. And he placed a cherubim there, a guardian with a flaming sword, that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Separated from God, separated from eternal life. And who's to blame? The sinner. Do you see the devastating consequences and effects of sin in your own life? 
Have you responded this way? Have you felt the guilt, the shame of sin? Maybe you're at the point where you've just become so callous toward it, you don't even acknowledge it when you do it, but you need to know that there are, there's serious guilt and serious shame that comes with sin. Have you experienced the role battle, the fight between the man and the woman? Ladies, have you experienced the pain in childbirth? Have you been touched by death, the death of a loved one, a close family member? Have you felt in your heart of hearts that separation, that broken relationship you know you have with God? The corruption within you? You know it's there. You know you have that enemy within. You know you're not good. Sometimes you make good decisions, but most of the time, be honest, you make bad ones. You have sinned. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the consequence of death is certain because of our sin. And it's not just the physical death. It's a spiritual death. And you can't fix it. Wow. So you've got a problem that you can't even fix yourself. You can't pick yourself by your own bootstraps and live a better life. You're corrupted. You've sinned against a holy God. You've fallen short. You've broken the law at one point. It means you've broken the whole thing. Here is your nature, your reality. If it was just you, left to yourself. Sin is horrible. It's devastating. It has devastating consequences. At the height of which is that you're separated from God. You're destined for eternal death. And paradise is lost. This is a dark day in human history. But man, God is so good that even in the darkest chapter, we have such a bright light of hope. God's grace is in this chapter. And I want to show it to you. The one scene of triumph, I'm going to call it the Redeemer. The Redeemer. Don't you think it's strange that after Adam gets all the curses that the first thing he does is name his wife? God just told him, you will die. Wait a minute, God. I get it, but I just got a good name for my wife. Hold it a moment. Let me go name her Eve. Isn't that a funny thing to do? Why does he name her Eve? What's the meaning of the name Eve? Verse 20 He called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Why did he do that? I'll tell you why. Because Adam, even after receiving the judgment of the curses, Adam has hope. Adam has hope in the promise of God that we skipped over in verse 15. Look back at verse 15, Genesis 3.15. This is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Here it is. In the midst of the curse that he dishes to the serpent, who we know is possessed by Satan, he talks now directly to Satan, and he dishes this curse. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, Satan might have thought, oh, I I got the woman. She's on my side. She's my ally. 
Unless he think that way, God's like, no, she's not. Oh, but at least I have her descendants. I'm the God of this world. I have this army of people that I can lead in revolt against you. And God goes, nope. No, there will be enmity between you and her and your offspring and her offspring. You know the word offspring, it's interesting. It means seed. Seed. Now, do women have seed? It's a biology question, anatomy question. No. So, somehow, this woman would have an offspring that would be of her, but not have the corrupted, fallen seed of man. That's interesting. And this offspring of the woman, now speaking singular, God promises he shall bruise Satan's head, even though Satan will bruise his heel. Now that word bruise can also be translated as crush or demolish. It's a strong word. Now I don't know if this is obvious. It should be. But let me paint the picture. Two guys are in a fight. One guy stomps the other's head in. That guy stomps the other's heel. Which wins? You know, which guy's walking away from the fight? The one who's hobbling on his heel. But the one who gets his head crushed, knocked out, KO, dead. You get the picture here. The offspring of the woman will destroy, knock out, kill, demolish, crush Satan. Who is this offspring, this seed? Now you know why. That Eve, sorry, Adam, when he receives the curses, he remembers the hope and he rushes to name his wife the mother of all living. Why? Because he's hoping in that promise. Someone's coming who's going to reverse that curse. Who's going to fix my wrongs. Who's going to be the solution to my biggest problem. So let me make sure that that promise is passed down. I'm going to name my wife Eve. She's going to be the mother of all the living. Who is this? Who could it be? And did you notice that even before God pronounces judgment on mankind, He promises a Redeemer. He promises a solution to the problem of sin and death. There are other hints of him in this passage. This Redeemer, this promised one. When Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't just, okay, that's it. Take the earth, wad it up into a ball, and throw it in the trash. He didn't just command fire from heaven, call out to the man from his high throne, and say, where were you? And scold him, and then pour out wrath. What did God do? He stepped down from heaven. To the earth. He condescended to man's level to help him, to provide a solution. Can you think of somebody else who did that? In Genesis 3 21, we see another hint of this Redeemer. The Lord God fixed those poor loincloths, and how does he do it? He, he made for Adam and his wife garments of skins. Where do you get skins? You have to kill animals. To get their skin. So get this. By a sacrifice, Adam and Eve are covered. Their shame is covered. Can you think of someone else who made a great sacrifice to cover our shame? Who else in human history was born of a woman, 
but doesn't have the man's seed. This has to be someone born of a virgin. Can you think of someone else who is tempted by Satan in the same way? Tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, yet this one didn't fail, didn't fall? Who's that? Can't you see the Redeemer in this passage? Who is this? We can name him. This is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ. He is the promised Redeemer. He's the one who's going to reverse the curse, who's going to conquer both sin and death, and he's going to finally crush that serpent's head, defeat him permanently. And how does he do it? How does Jesus of Nazareth reverse this curse? Well, he, though he had no sin, listen to me, though he did not sin, Jesus takes that curse upon his own shoulders. He drinks that whole cup himself. Jesus took the curse. Even though he did not sin, he did not deserve it, he took that curse. He was called the man of sorrows. He was acquainted with more grief than any other man. He suffered more than any other man. He wore the very thorns of the curse as his crown. In the agony of his labor, he sweat drops of blood. When's the last time you sweat drops of blood in your work? He sweat drops of blood. And his own father drove him out of paradise. His own father forsook him on the cross. In fact, his own father crushed him to the dust of death. Jesus drank the curse every drop. He took it upon Himself. And by His holy sacrifice, God was satisfied. He took your punishment, your consequences, your curse. Dead and buried in the grave until the third day, He rose again. By His death, the power of sin is defeated. By His resurrection, the power of death is dethroned. Death, where is your power? Where is your sting? Jesus Christ has conquered you by his great work of redemption. When he came, lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, died on the cross in your place, and rose again. Hallelujah. This is our Redeemer, the one who reverses the curse. And the work of redemption, the work of restoration isn't even finished yet. He's coming again. Today, he delivers us from the domain of darkness if we have faith and believe in him. He frees us from the power of sin and death in our life, Romans 8. And he's going to come back and reign perfectly in the same place that Adam failed. He will rule on the earth and over the earth. The second Adam, the perfect Adam. And he will defeat Satan permanently. He did throughout his life. He defeated Satan's temptation. He endured through that without sin. He was faithfully obedient to death on the cross, even though Satan tried to dissuade him. He accomplished redemption. He was perfect in obedience. And he's coming back to get rid of him for good, to permanently throw him into the lake of fire, Revelation 20. And the Bible says that he's going to restore all of creation. He's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. After defeating death forever, he'll, there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more curse, because He is making all things new. 
Revelation 21 and 22. Here he is, our Redeemer, the only solution to your problem, the only fix to our sin, the way, the truth, and the life. It's in Jesus Christ. Amidst the greatest tragedy of human history, God rushes to give us hope and point us to the triumph of Jesus Christ. You've got a problem, friends. We've all got the same problem. We're sinners. And because of our sin, we deserve death and we will die. We have the curse. It's corrupted us to the very core. And our destiny beyond physical death is eternal death, separation from God, hell. You've got a problem, friends. I've got that problem too. And there's only one solution. It's in the snake crusher, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who reverses the curse and provides a way back to be restored, to be redeemed, and have right relationship with God again. Do you trust him for salvation? Have you finally come to the end of yourself, acknowledged your sin, taken responsibility for it, acknowledged that I'm a sinner, corrupt to the core, and those consequences are just, I deserve death, I deserve to be separated from God forever. Have you come to that point in your life? Have you come to grips with your sinfulness, your corrupt nature? And then at the feet of the cross, have you cast your faith upon Jesus Christ who alone can atone for your sin, who can alone forgive you, who alone can give you new life in Him, who alone can reverse that curse in your life? Have you trusted Christ alone, turning from your sin and trusting Him as Savior? If not, this passage calls you to trust in him today, to set your hope on Jesus Christ alone, just as Adam did. And Christian, we know, man, sin is our tragedy, but praise God, Christ is our triumph. And our hope, we need to remember as Christians, is not in this world it's not in the kings of this world. It's not in a society that will right its own wrongs. It's not in the ideal utopia of a socialistic whatever. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He's coming back. Remind yourself of that. Trust in that. Hope in that. Cling to that. And not whatever else the world is peddling you. It's interesting. Adam, he also... Adam's so trusted in this hope. He so clung to it that he named one of his kids Seth. Seth's name means the seed. It's like such a great failure, but he, he hopes in the promises of God. That's why I believe one day we will see Adam in heaven, and you'll be able to ask him all the questions you want about why he failed. But Adam has this hope, and he names one of his sons Seth, which means the seed it's almost like Adam was through his life was asking God, hey, Jesus, come quickly. Fix this problem. Make all wrongs right. You promised the solution. I want him to come quickly. So I'm going to name my own son the seed. Christians, shouldn't we be saying the same thing? What are some of the last words in Scripture? Jesus, come quickly. Come back. Make all these wrongs right. Redeem the world. Restore creation. Bring us face to face with you in glory. 
fix all these problems in our society, in our world, and in my life. Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray to that end and let's hope to that end this week. Let me pray. Father, there is no other story ever spoken or written that is greater than yours. You have the ultimate story of redemption. And it is glorious. And you get all the glory for it. It's not a story about how men failed yet fixed their own problem. It's not a story so much about us as it is about you. Your glory. Your plan set forth from before time. Even though we sin, you send your son Jesus Christ to die for our sins and to provide for us a way back to you. And then even in the end, in the new heavens and the new earth, we see a perfect kingdom without death, without curse, without pain, without toil. You on the throne dwelling in our midst and we as a people serving and worshiping you for eternity. It's a glorious picture. It's better than the garden. Better than the paradise that was lost is the kingdom to come. And so God, we pray that Jesus would come back quickly. We want to live our lives for your glory, to stop being distracted by the little things we don't have. To not be like Eve and focus only on your restrictions and the things that you're withholding, but just be so thankful for all the gifts you've given us, namely salvation. And help us to live thankful lives of obedience to you. I pray that somebody here would finally come to, come to grips with their sin. They would recognize that they're a sinner and that they deserve death because of their sin. The wages of their sin is death. And they're separated from you, O oh God. If they're, if they're stuck in their sins and if they don't have a Savior, they're hopeless. And their only way out, the only solution, the only Savior is Jesus Christ. I pray that that person would repent of their sins, turn from their old life, the worthless waste of a life that the world offers and trust themselves to Jesus Christ and follow him as Lord and Savior because he is the Christ, the Redeemer, the Lord and Savior. So Lord, we pray those things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.